All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it's chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27. That is Mark 12, 18 through 27. <clears throat> we are obviously continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and this morning we come to a passage where our Lord Jesus teaches on the subject of the resurrection of the dead. Uh, in, in the text before us, Jesus continues to undergo questioning from the religious elite of Israel. Uh, this questioning started back in chapter 11, verse 27, um, where delegates from the Sanhedrin have come to Jesus and they're questioning him about his authority. Right? Where do you get your authority from? They're questioning him about the believer's relationship to the civil government. Uh, in our text today, they're questioning Christ about his theology. And next, in the next passage, they're going to question him about the law of God. And they're asking him all these questions to try to publicly discredit him and get him uh, some, of the, some of the time into legal trouble that would result in his execution. Or at the minimum, they're trying to severely hurt his popularity with the common people. So that's what these questions are all about. Um, it's also good to note that this text takes place on the Tuesday of Passion Week. Um, and and the, again, the context that we're in uh, in Mark's gospel, in just three days, Jesus is going to be crucified for the sins of the world. But prior to that, he allows himself, again, just a, a sign of his humility during his incarnation, he allows himself to be questioned by wicked men in the temple complex. But in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to be questioned about the resurrection of the dead. He's going to be questioned by a group of Jews who deny the doctrine of the resurrection. And Jesus is going to answer them. And he's going to silence them. And in his answer, we're going to see the great wisdom of, of our Lord. And, and we're also going to learn some things about the afterlife and what life in the world to come is going to be like. Um, and these, these things really are glorious. Um, think they're things I think that we probably don't think on enough. Um, we have life pretty easy here. To be honest, right, it's, it's, it's 2022. Life is pretty easy compared to what it was in the first century. Uh, you don't expect to die when you're 40. And because of that, I think we don't think about the world to come as often as we should. These, these, these truths that we're going to consider from this text about the life to come are, are glorious things. And they're things that we are very simple, and we probably already know most of them. But they're truths that encourage us as those who belong to Jesus Christ the one who was dead and is now alive forevermore, the one who is the firstborn from the dead. So, so my goal this morning is to walk us through the big picture stuff of this passage. Um, there's a lot for us to learn in Jesus' response to the Sadducees in this text. Uh, and because of that, Lord willing, I'm going to preach this text again next week, and we're going to see how does Jesus argue with people. Um, but for today, we're going to be considering the big picture points that our Lord makes concerning the afterlife and the resurrection of the dead. And I pray that God would make it an encouragement to your heart as you walk through this world in anticipation of life in the world to come. So with that said, would you stand with me, please, if you're able, for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, 
the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you with thankful hearts. We are grateful to have a copy of your word. We're grateful that you have revealed glorious truth to us so plainly in the scriptures. We're grateful that you've revealed yourself to us in a saving way through the word of God. But as we do every week, we confess once again that we are so often dull of hearing and understanding when it comes to your word. And so we are at your mercy to teach us and grant us faith in what you have to say to us in the word. So we ask that you would have mercy on us. Show us the glory of the resurrection of the dead. Show us Christ who is the firstborn of the dead. Open our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts to receive the word of truth. And we know that you will because you've made us your people. So we ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So our text begins in, in verse 18 by telling us that Sadducees came to Jesus to question him. Now, to understand the passage, you only need to know, like need. If you're going to understand the passage in its most basic way, you only need to know what Mark tells you here, that the Sadducees deny the resurrection of the dead. But you can get an even better understanding of the text if you know a little bit more than that about the Sadducees from history. Uh, so we're going to do some uh, historical background here so you can kind of see the richness of this passage. Um, so what about the Sadducees? Uh, first, we have to note that the Sadducees were a very small group within first century Judaism. Um, they, they came about during the intertestamental period. Uh, they didn't leave behind any writings about themselves. So what we know about them comes from their contemporaries who wrote about them. Uh, but despite, despite their small numbers, they had a lot of power. Right? So very small group, but very powerful group. Uh, they were very wealthy. Um, some people have called them the aristocrats of their day. And many of them were priests. Many of them held positions within the priesthood. Uh, so they pretty much ran things in the temple world. Uh, they especially ran things in the uh, temple complex I even read in one commentary that the high priest at this time was a Sadducee. Um, so you can imagine how mad that the Sadducees are at Jesus for flipping tables in the temple uh, the day before. They're very upset with him. Um, so uh, they're very small, but they're very powerful, and they were also very unpopular. Uh, the historian Josephus, a contemporary of the Sadducees, uh, he records for us that they were very arrogant and very smug. Uh, they were generally not friendly. Um, kind of not even to each other, I don't think. Like, they just weren't very friendly people. Uh, 
So then, they were a rich, powerful, priestly, smug, unpopular, small group within Judaism. These guys are, they're fun at parties, right? Um, But what about their doctrine? What about their doctrine? Well, as Mark tells us in verse 18, the Sadducees denied the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. They believed that only the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, they believed only those books were from God. So anything in the Old Testament after Deuteronomy did not count in their mind when they were thinking through doctrine. So anything after Deuteronomy, they don't believe. Um, And according to them, you could not prove the doctrine of the resurrection from the Torah. They didn't believe that you could prove it from the first five books of the Bible. So they denied the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. And they also denied any concept of the afterlife at all. So not only did they deny that on the last day there was going to be a resurrection of the dead, but they, they denied that there is anything that happens to you after you die. They believed that when the body died, the soul died with it. So there's no heaven uh, for you to go to, there's no hell for you to go to, and there is no resurrection at the last day. Uh, there is no, then there is no final judgment in the last day. They did not believe in a coming new heaven and new earth. Right? They denied all that. Um, you, you can also read in the book of Acts, um, I believe it's chapter 4 and chapter 26. I should have written it down in my notes, but I believe it's, it's, it's in the book of Acts. Uh, they denied the existence of angels uh, and, and demons, which is strange because the Torah speaks of angels uh, and Satan. <laughs> uh, so, so these men, even with their limited Bibles, still didn't believe everything in their Bibles. They were theological liberals. They rejected much of the scriptures, and the little that they did embrace as scripture, they still didn't believe all of it. Um, The Sadducees, you could put it this way, they were functionally naturalists. Uh, What do I mean by that? They believed that this life is all there is, and they functionally denied the supernatural. They believed that nothing happens after you die. Maybe you've heard this phrase. I used to use it when I was an atheist. When you die, you die like a dog. You go nowhere. I'm sorry, all dogs do not go to heaven. They don't have souls, right? When you die, you die like a dog. And so they believe that there are no future rewards or punishments for anybody, no matter how you live. And this caused the Sadducees to live only for the here and now, which made them pretty ruthless in their dealings with their fellow men. This group, they were first-order heretics, and I agree with one commentator who said they were functional atheists because they denied the supernatural element of religion. And a quick note here, there are many like this in our day. There are many like this in our day. So many of the people that we interact with each day, and the number has been growing for decades, they deny that there is an afterlife. They deny that there is a resurrection of the dead. They deny all things supernatural. But please know this. Let me encourage you. Men cannot change the truth. Men cannot change the truth. They can deny it if they want to, but they cannot change it. Men can laugh at the idea of the resurrection of the dead, and they can laugh at the idea of an afterlife and everything else in our religion, but it changes nothing. The truth is still true, even if people deny it, even if the majority of people deny it. Truth does not change. And as our Lord is going to teach us, and we are going to receive his word by faith because he is God, he teaches us there is a life after this one. And it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It's true. So know this, the opinions of men do not change the truth of God. So so these wealthy, powerful, 
unbelieving men came to Jesus to ask him a question. And it was a question about the resurrection of the dead. And that should be your first indication that this question is not a real question. They weren't looking to Jesus, oh, master teacher, please give us some theological clarification. We're so confused. <clears throat> That's not what's going on here. Forgive me. I think allergies are getting the best of me. <clears throat> they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so the question that they asked Jesus was meant to be a gotcha question, right? They don't believe in the resurrection, but they're asking a question about the resurrection. They're trying to make Jesus look stupid. And here's their question. Verse 19, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now let's pause here real quick. This is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. And there you'll read about what is commonly called leveret marriage. And no, it doesn't have anything to do with the tribe of Levi. Uh, leveret is, comes from the Latin that means brother-in-law. Right, so this is brother-in-law marriage. And Moses wrote this in Deuteronomy 25. Remember, Moses wrote this. This is in Deuteronomy. This is one of the books that they accept as scripture. 25 verses 5 and 6. Moses wrote, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now, I know that there are many questions that you probably have about this law, um, right? Because it's such a foreign idea to us. But let's just consider the big picture for our purposes this morning. The law said, Deuteronomy 25 says, that if a man died without having a male heir, his brother, I personally think this brother was to be unmarried because God does not command polygamy in the scriptures. This man's brother was to marry the widow and have children with her so as to produce a male heir for his dead brother. And this was done so that the inheritance of the land of Israel would remain in each tribe as God had commanded. And it was also done so that the lineage of a man would not die so that the name of the tribes would continue on until the Messiah would be revealed. All right, so this was very important to the Sadducees because they believed that the only way to live on after death was through your offspring. All right, so this is very important to them. Now, in light of that law, the Sadducees posed a hypothetical question. I don't believe that, the, that they actually had this happen. I think they're, they're trying to do a, a, an argument to absurdity with Jesus uh, here in verses 20 through 23. Here's their hypothetical question. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. By the way, that's how you know they're trying to make Jesus look ridiculous. It would have been enough with two, right? Like, that, like the problem is still there that they're going to ask. And, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, they ask, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. They believed that they had just put Jesus in a corner with this question. When all eight of these people rise from the dead, since the seven men were married to the one woman, whose wife is she? Who, what, like, who has rights to her? And the Sadducees believed that this was absolutely ludicrous. L let me explain. Follow me. You're going to have to follow me a lot on this because this passage is a little bit complicated. Since all the men would have a right to her, but the Old Testament nowhere speaks 
of a woman having more than one husband. There are men who have more than one wife in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament knows nothing of a woman having more than one husband at the same time. This mess was unsolvable. And since it was unsolvable and a violation of the law of God for a woman to have more than one wife, or woman to have more than one husband, also be a sin for a woman to have a wife. Um, and, and since this was unsolvable and a violation of God's law, then surely God will not raise people from the dead and create such a problem. That's what they're saying. This problem is unsolvable. It's a violation of the law. So surely God's not going to raise people from the dead and create this problem. Now, this seems silly to us because we already know the answer that Jesus is going to give. Right? The idea that people would be married in the life to come is silly to us as Christians because we have the benefit of knowing what Jesus says to them. But for the people of the day, this was a real conundrum. Let me explain why. It's because your average Jew, under the teaching of the Pharisees, who were the most popular group of the day, under the teaching of the Pharisees, your average Jew believed some errors about the resurrection of the dead. You see, the common understanding of resurrection was this. Life will be the same as it is now, just better. That was the common view of the Pharisees, which became the common view of, of most Jews. The resurrection life will be essentially the same as it is now, just better. So the Jews who believed in the resurrection of the dead at this time, they believed that marriage, childbirth, work, sleep, eating and drinking for survival, and all the rest would continue even after the resurrection, but the world would just be better under the reign of the Messiah. Right? That's what they're looking at. And if that were the case, if that were the case, then the Sadducees really have posed a tough question. If the world to come is just a better version of this life, then marriage continues. So then whose wife is this woman? She had seven husbands. Whose wife, if they're all alive, whose wife is she? The Sadducees believed that this question, which almost no doubt was a question that they posed to the Pharisees often, no doubt, they thought that this question absolutely destroyed the doctrine of the resurrection. Not only that, but remember this, they believe that the resurrection is nowhere taught in the first five books of the Bible. And they only accept those first five books as scripture. So if anyone quotes Daniel 12, 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 73, Isaiah 26, Job 41, right? If anyone quotes anything outside of the Torah to prove the doctrine of the resurrection, they'll just dismiss it. Say, well, that's not scripture. We don't believe that. So they're pretty confident in their question. They're really confident in their question. Now, just so you know, if you didn't, our Lord very much believed in and taught about the resurrection of the dead. We know that so far in Mark's gospel, three times he has personally prophesied that he will die and be raised from the dead in just a few days. He also very publicly taught about the future resurrection and judgment of all men. During his ministry, he publicly taught about this. You can read uh, John, the Gospel of John, chapters 5 and 6. I'll uh, give you examples of this. It was in front of thousands of people. Everyone knows that Jesus believes in the resurrection of the dead. So in the minds of the Sadducees, the trap has been set. And no matter how Jesus answers, he is in a lot of trouble. Let me explain. First, Jesus can continue to hold to the doctrine of the resurrection and look like a fool. Right? Remember, they don't believe that their question is answerable because they misunderstand the nature of the life to come. So if Jesus affirms the common understanding 
of the resurrection, that life will be basically the same as it is now, then he can't answer their question, and he's going to look foolish. Or, second option, Jesus can deny the doctrine of the resurrection, and in doing so, prove himself untrustworthy because of his prior teaching on the subject. If Jesus denies the doctrine, then he's shown to be a false teacher and a liar, or at least he is shown to be too unstudied in the scriptures to be followed. But our Lord is wise. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians, God is wiser than men. Jesus knew the scriptures. They're his, after all. He is God. God inspired the scriptures. They're, it's Jesus' book, right? He knows how to argue from the book, and so he has a masterful answer for them. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? One of my favorite sentences out of Jesus' mouth, by the way. God willing, we're going to spend more time in this verse next week. Uh, but see here how straightforwardly our Lord answers them. He poses it in the form of a question, but really it's a statement. He tells them, you're wrong. You're wrong about the resurrection. And you're wrong because you're ignorant of the scriptures and you're ignorant of the power of God. To put it in uh, how I would say it, maybe the, the Dave Dowdy translation. You want to know why you're wrong? It's because you don't know the Bible. That's where Jesus starts. You're wrong because you don't know the Bible. Not only do you reject everything but the Torah, but you don't even understand the Torah. You, you don't understand the scriptures. So their first problem is that they don't know the word of God. And their second problem is that of unbelief. Right? They are ignorant of the power of God. They don't believe that God can create a new world that is qualitatively different from this one. Right? They thought that it was just this same world, but just quantitatively better, right? Just the same thing, but better. No, they, so they have no idea that God can make, it, make a world that is qualitatively different. They have no category uh, for a life that is substantially different from this world. Because of their errors about the resurrection and what life in the resurrection will be like, they have no concept of a world that is not like this one. They are so fettered to this world because of their denial of the resurrection, that they don't believe that God can make a new and different way of living. And Jesus is going to address both of these errors. But we're going to take them out of order. We're going to take them out of order this morning. First, we're going to consider their ignorance of the scriptures that they claim to be masters of, and then we're going to consider how they misunderstood resurrection life altogether. And with the first one, actually with, with both of these, you're going to have to pay somewhat close attention. So... Go with me here. The payoff is glorious. I'm serious. The payoff is glorious. Just hang with me here and hear the argument. We don't just believe things because they make us feel good. We have to see their foundation in the scriptures first, and then we exalt. That's how this works. You have to see this, what the scriptures teach, and then you worship. So, so hang in here with me. With regard to the scriptures, they don't even understand the few books that they accept as scripture. And Jesus is going to show them this by proving the resurrection from the Torah. That's what he's going to do here. Specifically from the book of Exodus, a book that all Jews knew very well. Verses 26 and 27. He says, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The Sadducees claimed that the doctrine of the resurrection can't be proved from the Torah, but Jesus disagrees. So he takes them to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. 
That's what Jesus is quoting from here, where God calls himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And this is a phrase that all Jews knew very well. Most Christians know this phrase very well, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus is pointing out here that the Sadducees have missed something very important that is implied in this verse, and it has to do with life after death and the resurrection of the dead. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Jesus' quotation of Exodus 3.6 could be referring to a few different things. And, and what I mean is that Jesus could be making a few different arguments from this verse, maybe all of them being implied. Um, and I'm not exactly sure which one he's making, uh, but they all come to the same conclusion about the resurrection and the afterlife. So I'm just going to give them all to you. First, the first one is the simplest, but it is very powerful. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what the text in Mark says. But when God spoke, when God spoke to Moses that day, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for centuries. Centuries. But nevertheless, he is their God. He does not say, I was the God of Abraham. He says, I am the God of Abraham. He is their God. And if God is their God, at the time that he says this to Moses, if God is their God, then they must still be alive. They must still be alive. Though they have died in the body, they must still be alive somewhere and somehow, or God is no longer their God. And that would make God a liar in what he says to Moses. But God is no liar. So then, God is their God, and they are still alive in the spirit, though dead in the body. That could be the first thing Jesus means here. I am the God of Abraham. Not I was his God, but I still am. A second thing that Jesus could be arguing from this text, and the next two arguments are a little bit deeper than that. They're not as simple. Follow with me. Jesus might be saying this, God is their God. How? By way of covenant. God is their God by way of covenant. We read that in the book of Genesis. God covenanted himself to Abraham and his offspring and became their God, and they became his people. And what does that mean? It means he made promises to them. They are his now. He belongs to them and they belong to him. By pledging himself to be their God through covenant, he brought them under his care. And he promised to bless them and do good for them and protect them. And God's promises have no expiration date. God did not say, I will be your covenant God so long as you live upon the earth. No, God just says, I am your God and you are mine. Period. So then... By virtue of being in a covenant relationship to God through faith, God is not just their God throughout this life, but even after their death, he must still be their God. After all, if God is only your covenant protector until death, then death has actually overpowered God's ability to take care of you. But God is mightier than death. And so those who die in covenant with God, those who die with God as their God, must continue to live elsewhere or God is unfaithful and not able to keep covenant with you. And that, brothers and sisters, is a ludicrous thought. So then, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are still alive. God remains their God through covenant, even after the death of their body. He could be arguing from covenant. Or the third argument our Lord could be making, and it's similar to the second, but I feel like it's very powerful. God is eternal. Everyone would agree with that. God does not die. God is and he always will be and always has been. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were in covenant with this eternal God by faith. 
Again, that's why God says, I am their God. And to be in covenant with the eternal God means that he eternally owns you. And so he is eternally your God. And if he eternally owns you, you must continue to exist eternally because it is impossible for one to own that which does not exist. It's a contradiction in terms. You can't own something if it doesn't exist. If he is your God, then he is your God forever because he is eternal. So then you must live even after you're dead because he lives. And with all three of these arguments... There's this to consider. All of them have to do with God owning the person. God is their God. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And God is not only God of, or rather God is not God of only part of the person. He is God of the whole person, their soul and their body. And so their body must be raised someday at God's appointed time or God is only God over their soul. So not only is there life after death, but there is a resurrection that is coming because he's God over the whole person, body and soul. No matter which argument you think our Lord was making, the point is very clear. So you ready for the payoff? Those who belong to God cannot perish. Worship. Worship this God. Those who belong to God cannot perish. This life is not all there is. There is life after death, and there is the resurrection of the body that comes at the end of the age. Be encouraged, Christian. Those who belong to God belong to God forever. A glorious day of resurrection is coming for those who die in a right relationship to God. Those who die being in covenant with God through faith will live again. As Job said, in one of the most powerful verses in the Old Testament, Job 19, verses 25 through 25, Job said, or 25 through 27, Job said, For I know, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, after I've been dead in the grave, yet I, rather, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. After my skin is thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he's going to stand on the earth, and I'll see him, even though I'm going to die. I'll see him in my flesh. Or as Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. And this is beautiful. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light. And the earth will give birth to the dead. A resurrection is coming. God's covenant love for his people cannot be severed even by death. If God is your God, he is God forever over you. And he will not allow you to stay in the grave. He will raise each one of us up to everlasting life. He promises, and he is faithful to do it. According to his promises, we will live forever. So, back to our text then. The Sadducees did not know the scriptures. They didn't know them. They knew the verse was there, but they did not understand it. And we've seen our Lord address that. And now we turn to see Jesus address the fact that they were ignorant of God's power. 
his power to make resurrection life much different than earthly life as we know it. And in doing so, Jesus reveals some glorious things about what life will be like in the world to come. Jesus says in verse 25, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus here tells the Sadducees that resurrection life is simply not like life on earth. There, listen, there will be continuity, right? Abraham is still Abraham. He's dead and he's still Abraham. Isaac is still Isaac. Jacob is still Jacob. I'll still be me. You will still be you, right? That there will be continuity. Humans are still humans, but they're like angels. At the minimum, it means that their lives are significantly different then than they are now. Jesus says that in the resurrection, there's no more marriage for anyone. No more marriage for anyone. Well, there's still Christ and his bride, but that's it. And then this is, again, one example of how life in the world to come is not like life here on earth now. I was talking to my brother-in-law about this. A world with no marriage. A world with no individual families. This is strange. We cannot imagine a world like this. There are major differences between life now and life in the world to come. And God is powerful to make it different. God is powerful to bring an end to the current order of things on earth and instead bring in something much better and much more glorious. And their problem was they didn't believe it. But let's focus on Jesus' example of there being no more marriage in the resurrection. He says in our text that there won't be marriage because we will be like the angels in heaven. Now let's be very clear about something. I've been to some strange funerals. Um, Jesus does not say that we will become angels. I'm sorry. Your grandmother did not get wings. She didn't, and neither did mine. Right? Like, that you don't become an angel, right? Uh, you don't become a different species whenever you die. You remain human. And this is a huge error that many people believe. And I'm not trying to mock anyone. If, you're, if your grandmother died in Christ, she actually has a higher position than angels because she's one of the redeemed. Right? So know that. Um, but angels aren't humans. <laughs> so we will not become them. We are raised to life as humans in the same body that we have now at the last day. But we will be like angels. There's a similarity. We'll be like angels in that we will not marry. So angels don't get married. But why is that? Well, thank God for the parallel gospel accounts because Luke's account gives us more information. In Luke chapter 20, verses 35 and, uh, 35 and 36, Jesus says this, The resurrected neither marry nor are given in marriage, for, this is explanatory, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels. So Jesus says that we will not marry anymore because we cannot die anymore. And that's because we will have become like angels who do not die. Follow with me again. The payoff is going to be good. Follow with me here. This is one of the biggest ways that resurrection life is going to be different. There won't be any more death. We cannot imagine a world without death. We can't. To eat much of the food that we are going to eat later, something had to die. We cannot imagine a world without death. 
that in the world to come there will be no death, and since there is no death, there will be no need for marriage. Why is that? Well, one of the biggest reasons that marriage exists is for the continuation of the human race. Procreation is one of the biggest reasons God gave us marriage. But listen, if nobody dies in the life to come, then there is no need for the repopulation of the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, there is no need for marriage. Life is going to be much different after the resurrection. There will be no death. But consider with me, there are some seriously blessed implications that come from this. There will be no death in the life to come. And what does that mean? There won't be any sin there either. There won't be any sin there either. We only die because of sin. That's it. We die because of sin. Paul tells us in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And in Romans 5.12, he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death, hear me, death only exists where sin exists. Where there is no sin, there is not even the possibility of death. So where there is no death, there must be no sin. And Jesus just told us that there is no death in the world to come. In the resurrection, nobody will die. And that means that we will live in a world without sin. Brothers and sisters, we will one day inhabit a completely renewed world and we will not recognize it. Our world is so full of sin and death. It's like we're fish. Fish don't know that they're wet because they're so submerged, submerged in water. We don't even understand what a world would be like without sin and death. But Jesus says it's coming. It will be a place of perfection in every way. It will be a place, a, a perpetual dwelling with God in his immediate presence. His immediate presence. It will be a place of glory and splendor where there is no darkness, where there is no sin, where there is no death. And imagine it, no sin means that there will be none of the effects of sin. There will be no sickness in that day. There will be no miscarriages in that day. There will be no infertility in that day. There will be no strife in that day. There will be no aging in that day. There will be no more temptations to sin. There will be no fighting, no arguments. What's a world with no arguments? We don't know what this is like. There will be no arguments. There will be no hunger or thirst. There will be no cruelty. There will be no divorce. There will be no hatred. There will be no natural disasters. Even the created order will be what it should have been. There will be no more weakness. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more goodbyes. Life as God intended us to have will be ours and it will be ours forever and we will say goodbye to sorrow. Why? Because sin will be gone. It will be gone from the world and it will be gone from us. To put a twist on J.R.R. Tolkien's words, everything sad will become untrue. Everything sad will become untrue. Endless day 
eternal life, happiness forever with our God and King. Brothers and sisters, I want this day so badly. And I look forward to this day, and I know that you do as well. We look forward to the glory that awaits us for Christ's sake. I can't believe I'm about to quote a Southern Gospel song, but it reminds me of one that I know. It says, I am homesick for a country where I've never been before. We are. We long for the day when all things will be made right. Where every wrong will be righted, every wound will be healed, every heartbreak will be mended. We look forward to the day when the dead in Christ shall rise to eternal glory with our Lord Jesus and we who are left alive will meet him in the air. And it is my joy to declare to you that that day is more certain to come to pass than that the sun will shine on you tomorrow. How are you so confident, David? Jesus said so. Don't believe me. Believe him. Believe the one who died and yet is alive forevermore. Believe the one who proved that the resurrection of the dead will happen by being raised from the dead himself on the third day to never die again. Don't believe me, believe him. Our Lord says so. He has spoken. And brothers and sisters, where we are headed, there is no death. Where we are headed, the Lord says, behold, I make all things new. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.9, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Glory awaits. Unspeakable glory. Paul tells us, you don't have words for it. I don't have, what is it going to be like? I don't know, but I know God doesn't lie. And he says it's unspeakable. You've never seen anything like this. You've never heard anything like this. Imagine the best that you can imagine, and that's not even close. No heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I don't know what else to tell you about it, but I can tell you that it's coming. It's real. We praise God for it. And as glorious as this is to meditate upon, let me give one final word about resurrection, and it's, it is a bit more sobering. Jesus teaches on this subject in John 5, and he says something there uh, that he does not say in our text here. In John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, our Lord says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, that is, hear Jesus' voice, and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So please hear me. Not only will the believer be raised, but the unbeliever will be raised as well. Everyone will be raised from the dead, every single person, every single one of us. The righteous will be raised to life, and the wicked will be raised to everlasting punishment. But rest assured, all will rise. Jesus says so, and his word is true. And what will make the difference? What makes the difference in your eternity? What makes the difference in where you'll spend eternity? Your response to Christ is what will determine it. How you respond to Christ in this life will determine your eternal destiny in the life to come. 
In John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, I am. He doesn't just give the resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says, whoever embraces him by faith, whoever believes in him, though you will die, yet you shall live. Everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. That is the word of the Lord. So let me ask you this. I look here and I, I don't see many visitors. I'm not questioning anyone's profession of faith. I'm saying only God knows your heart. So I, let me say this. Do you believe this? Jesus actually, he's, he's talking, I believe it's to, to Martha. I believe it is in this text, Martha or Mary. And he says, do you believe this? But let me tell you, in, in, in today, he's asking you. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet he shall live. Do you believe this? Do you believe this personally? Have you cast your eternal fate on the Lord Jesus? Have you staked eternity on him? Have you come to the end of yourself? Know that you're a sinner and know that Christ is your only hope. That Christ's life, death, and resurrection in your place is the only hope that you have. Do you personally believe in him? Do you believe he is the savior of sinners? Do you believe he is your savior? Do you believe this? Do you believe that he has done enough to save you? If you do, then eternal life is yours and he will raise you up on the last day and you will live forever with him. But a word of caution, if you do not, you will still be raised from the dead and you will be raised to receive the righteous wrath of God in the lake of fire for all eternity. But even now, today, God is offering you eternal life through faith in his son. Jesus says, whoever believes in him, though he dies, yet he shall live. So as we come to a conclusion, let me say just a few more things. The resurrection of the dead is real. Our Lord taught it. And then he proved it by his own resurrection on the third day. It's like we're pre-gaming for Easter. He proved it. And his resurrection to eternal life is the first fruits of the resurrection of his people. If you have been united to Christ through faith, his resurrection guarantees yours. Know that. Resurrection is coming. And everyone will be raised. Everyone will be raised. The unbeliever should fear this. Because they will be raised to damnation. Even if they deny it like the Sadducees. The unbeliever should fear this. But Christian, please hear me. Let's end this on a very positive note. There is no fear in the resurrection for you. Look forward to it. Don't fear it. <laughs> Don't doubt that the Lord Jesus has done enough to raise you to eternal life. Don't fear it. There is only comfort and joy and delight for you. God is your God. Just as he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he is your God and he is your God forever. Be comforted. For those of you who have lost family members who died in Christ, the dead in Christ shall rise first. They're with him now in soul. And one day Christ will unite their soul to their body. And they will forever be with him, just as you will. Rejoice, they are not gone. Your loved ones who died in Christ will be raised. And you, Christian, will be with him forever. 
you will be with him forever in a perfect place, dwelling in endless day. Do not fear the last day. You are in Christ and you will live forever with him. A perfect world is coming for God's people. So say this with all faith and joy. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for your word that is such an encouragement to us. It is a warning to the unbeliever of the judgment that awaits, but what a comfort it is to the one who is in Christ. Glory awaits us, and we don't deserve an ounce of it, and yet you give it to us in Christ. We long for that day. Help us to believe in the resurrection and to live like it. Our greatest hope in this life is that this life is not our greatest hope. Thank you for your promises that you've given us in Christ that you will keep. We pray this all in his name. Amen.